0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Talkin' Shop with Dylan McGlynn. I'm your host, Dylan McGlynn. We have another awesome guest for you this week, so let's get right into it and talk some shop. My guest this week is Jay Plakesburg. Jay is a professional photographer well known for his pictures of Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. In addition, he also shoots for magazines having done over 300 covers for Rolling Stone in addition to many other magazines. He also has directed the live video feed at music festivals like Lollapalooza and Summer Camp.
1: Hey. What's going on, Mr. Dylan How much, how are you?
0: Good. So Good. yeah, uh, to start, I kind of wanted to ask about kinda how you got into photography at first and like what made you know you wanted to do it for a living? Was there like one specific moment where you were like, this is what I want to do? Or was it kind of like gradual?
1: I first picked up a camera in the 1970s when I was in high school and I was borrowing uh, my dad's camera. I was borrowing my brother's camera. Uh, I was just starting to sort of take pictures in high school of my friends and pictures of my friends doing bong hits and, you know, doing other stupid things. And I just liked the feeling of developing that film and uh, seeing those photos come up. I started bringing my camera to concerts, like a real camera, 35 millimeter camera, when I was still in high school. And I used to just make eight by 10 prints and hang them on my bedroom wall and give them to my friends to hang on their bedroom walls. And uh, I went to see a Jerry Garcia band show in the summer of 77. And uh, it was the first time I saw Jerry. It was before I saw my first Grateful Dead concert. And uh, we had front row seats. And my buddy who brought me there, his name is Lossie, um, His nickname, Craig Lockwood, Lazi, And he brought a camera that he borrowed from somebody and took a bunch of crappy pictures. It's funny, I just found one of them in a box like last week uh from the front row and we developed them in a dark room at a, another kid's house that i was in in my grade in high school Lazi was two years older than me so he had a car so he could drive and take us to these things and i liked that little magic of that soup that developer where jerry kind of popped up out of nowhere and all of a sudden we had jerry garcia on a piece of paper and uh then i started borrowing cameras from my brother and my father and uh In 1978, when the Grateful Dead played a giant stadium, I borrowed my dad's camera and took a bunch of photos. And uh, that was the first time I photographed the Grateful Dead. But prior to that, in May of 78, I went and photographed Jorma Kalkinen at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. It was a little like 3000 seat theater in New Jersey, pretty legendary venue. Uh, not to be confused with the current Capitol Theater yeah, in Port yeah. Chester, New York. It's a different Capitol Theater. And uh, after the show was over, I went to that with Lazi. also. Uh, we went out to the side door where the dressing room, you know, the backstage entrance was. And we were waiting for Yorma to come out. And we wanted to get his autograph. And he just zipped right past us and got in his limousine. And Lazi looked at me and my buddy, Nicky, who we went with, and said, we're going to go follow Yorma's limousine into New York City and get his autograph. And, or follow him wherever he's going. I don't even think we knew he was going into New York City, but that's where they went. And so he went through probably the uh, uh, Lincoln Tunnel or the Holland Tunnel. And, and I'm guessing it was the Lincoln Tunnel because he ended up in Midtown Manhattan. And we followed him in a little Carmen it's a little Volkswagen. And he got out in a delicatessen. And, uh, we went in there and got his autograph. And Lazzie asked him if he could have his jacket. He had like this satin jacket on, I think. And Yorma L- was like, "Who the fuck are you, dude?" And no, you can't have my jacket. But I'll sign your ticket and I'll sign this ten-dollar bill you just put in front of my face, which I'm pretty sure we spent that ten-dollar bill in the store <laughs> right then and there. Um, but anyway, so I got a photo of Yorma. I looked at him and I said, "Hey, Yorma, how about a smile?" And he turned around and he looked at me and gave me this big grin with his eyes bugging out of his head because you know there were a lot of drugs involved back then in the 1970s and a big gold tooth and i took that photograph and it was sharp and it was crisp and it was exposed properly and uh, fluorescent lights on the ceiling black and white photo made a print of it mailed it to relics magazine to the letters to the editor told him a little story about how we followed the limousine into new york city got your autograph and they published it and i was 16 years old and you know nowadays when you're 16 years old, you're getting published every 30 seconds on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and whatever else is out there. Uh, But back then, seeing a photograph of yours in a print magazine, let alone a print magazine that you read cover to cover every time it came out, uh, was pretty mind-blowing. And so I was just like, wow, this is really fucking great. You know, And, and my picture was in Rolling Stone. And then Uh, I didn't get paid any money for it. You know, the picture was about, you know, two inches or three inches across, it was really small. And um, from there, I just kind of kept shooting concerts. Whenever I went to a concert, I'd bring a camera. And in November of 78, after I shot the uh, pictures of the dead at the Meadowlands, I photographed the Grateful Dead at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. That was November of 78. And then about a year later in September of 79, I met a guy when I was out in Colorado, I think it was, uh, going to see the Grateful Dead who said, Hey, I'm a writer, man. And in two weeks, I'm going to go review the show at in Rochester and Madison square garden. And if you're going, you you can send in your photos to the Aquarian Weekly, which is like a free weekly newspaper like all the other free weekly newspapers around the country. Uh, But the Aquarian back then was like one of the originals. The free newspapers weren't like this everywhere. Um, And it still exists, the Aquarian. And I sent in a couple of photos of the dead up in Rochester, and they actually reviewed the garden shows, but these are my Rochester shows. And they got published and they paid me $15, $7.50 for each photo times two photos. I was uh, 16 years old, 17 years old, uh, still, I guess, uh, September 79, 17 years old. I was published in print. I was paid money. I was on my way to becoming almost famous.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great story. And um, so obviously I know you kind of grew up in the, the New Jersey ish area, right? Around like Capitol Theater.
1: Yeah, a little bit south of there. Let me tell one more story about because yeah. it's the second part of your question, which is that I know right away that I wanted to be a photographer when I went to college uh, in Olympia, Washington, and uh, it was and I and I really did. And this is and now we're talking five years later. I think this is 1984 yeah. about what we're talking about. So four or five years later, and I've been taking a lot of photos, but just as a hobby and for fun. And I did want to be a photographer, but I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to get a photo pass from a publicist to get access to something to shoot. I didn't know how to get an assignment from a newspaper or a magazine. Um, You know, the thing with the thing with the Aquarian Weekly was a a fluke, you know. And uh, so anyway, I was up in Washington state and I worked for this guy named Chris Nelson. And uh, he had a photo studio and I worked in the darkroom for him and occasionally took some pictures for him. And he got hired to photograph uh, the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon Trials, right? So 1984 Olympics was the very first time ever that there was a marathon race run by women in the Olympics. And they held the trials in Olympia, Washington, where I went to college. And Chris, who I worked for, got hired to document that. And uh, so he had me photograph it with him. And uh, at the end of the race, there are these three women up on the podium on a stage that they built at the end of the the 26 mile race and these three women, were going to go to the Olympics and represent the United States. And this is again, this is the first time that women are going to run in the Olympics in a marathon and uh, they're standing there up on the podium and, and it was a big deal. And every sports magazine was there, Sports Illustrated and Sport and Runner's World and whatever magazines existed at the time that covered the sport of running. And uh, the Sports Illustrated guy is sitting, standing next to me, getting ready to do this award shot of these three women with their medals that are about to go to the Olympics. And, uh, and he's like this big, heavy, like 250, 300-pound guy, with five cameras around his neck and long lenses and you know, looking like a, a wild man. And I'm like, you know, whoa, like, and I, I, I'm like literally long hair, wearing purple, have like a little like Guatemalan purse on my side to keep filming, you know, like wearing some hippie slippers. And, uh, and the governor of the state of Washington gets up on the stage with these women to be in this photo op. And the guy from Sports Illustrated yells up at the stage at the governor. He says, Governor, get out of my picture. You're ruining the photo. And right then and there, I knew that I wanted to be a photographer, because I wanted to be that guy that had enough power to tell the governor to get the fuck out of a photo because he's ruining it. (laughs) That is hilarious. (laughs) All right, continue on. I think you had another question for me.
0: Yeah. uh, So I know, obviously, like you grew up in the New Jersey area, then, as you just mentioned, went out to Washington for college. I know you ended up in San Francisco doing... uh, as the house photographer for the I Beam. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like it's kind of a unique experience where you're just in one place and you kind of just take the bands as they come and go.
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, obviously a lot of stuff happened in between then. Uh, I lived in Olympia, Washington for a couple of years there while I was in college, and I moved to the Bay Area in 85. And uh, that's when I really was like, okay you know, I'm I'm finishing up college and I've actually got to get a job and I want to be a photographer because that's what really interests me. And I don't really know what else I would do with my life, um, except for maybe be a drug dealer. But I already had done that when I was in high school and that didn't work out so well. So I decided that I had to have a real career. And so I just started taking pictures of everything that I possibly could. And I, of course, I loved rock and roll and I loved the Grateful Dead. And so I was just photographing anything that interested me. And I was actually, uh, Um, photographing like there were a lot of free concerts that were put on around town by radio stations and just different things that were happening. uh, uh, And I started ushering um, for concerts at at the Warfield where, you know, Bill Graham put on shows and I would sneak my camera in and take some photos when I was cut loose from being an usher and and anything I could to put myself in front of music I was doing. And so about 1986, 87, uh, let me think about this. Yeah, no, I think it was 80, I think it's 87, 88, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I started going to some shows at the Beam, and that was this really kind of funky club on Hate Street, um, a few blocks up from Hate ashbury about five, six blocks up, closer to Golden Gate Park. And somehow I met the woman who was the booking agent there, um, you know, the talent buyer. She book. you know, she brought the bands in. And somehow I convinced her to just let me come to m- shows and take pictures. She didn't pay me any money. And I was just trying to learn how to take photos of bands and clubs. And uh, she agreed to that. And I would just give them some eight by tens. And one of my photos of the butthole surfers ended up on a poster for a future show at, at the iBeam once. But like in general, I was just trying to learn how to do what I did. And in the meantime, it was sort of the birth of alternative rock, right? So I got to shoot Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, The Pixies, Throwing Muses, um, Jello Biafra, The Chills, Soul Asylum, uh, the Dickies, uh, just a whole host of bands that were kind of coming through the I-beam. Uh, the Godfathers had a big hit out of Britain. They were they had a song called Work, Death, uh, no, Birth, School, Work, Death, and I photographed the Godfathers. And so just all these different bands, and I was just trying to learn how to be a photographer. And the interesting thing about um, the I-beam is that they only have live music on Monday nights. On the weekends, it was a gay, uh, a male gay disco, you know, and, uh, you know, the club owner, the guy who owned the club was, you know, a a, a gay man, and that was what he wanted to do there. But he gave Monday nights to this woman named Kathy Cohn, and Kathy was the talent buyer, and she brought in all these bands. I mean, this is a place where bands like The Cure and uh, um, all sorts of big alternative bands kind of got their first plays in San Francisco at the I-Beam. And uh, kind of a legendary, legendary place. Um, but that's that was how I ended up being the house photographer at the IBM.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, and that's quite a list of of bands that came through there. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then kind of going back to uh, the Dead a bit. I know obviously you mentioned earlier that you kind of just would show up to concerts as a fan with your camera. How did your like kind of working relationship with them begin?
1: So the with the Grateful Dead. Um, and this was very unique to the Grateful Dead because most bands stopped this after a while. So, you know, in the 1970s, you could pretty much bring a camera to any concert. And as the 70s rolled into the 80s, you started being restricted and needed press credentials, right? Or you had to sneak your camera in. Uh, and um, uh, But the Grateful Dead still let you bring a camera in on your own without any credential. And the Grateful Dead let you do that until the last note that they played with Jerry Garcia, you were always allowed to be a fan and bring a camera into a Grateful Dead concert. Now, other bands would not let you do that. And so I uh, I started a relationship with Rolling Stone magazine. So in the late 80s, you know, like I said, with the Eyebeam, 86, 87, 88, 89, I'm learning how to be a photographer, I'm kind of cutting my teeth, I'm trying to figure out how to get published, I'm trying to figure out how to make a living. Um, I had a friend uh, named Robin Malice who was a deadhead who went to high school with a woman named Jody Peckman and Jody just got a brand new job as the photo editor at Rolling Stone magazine and Robin introduced us and Jody was a deadhead and into the band and uh, I was just kind of bugging her like hey I'm here in San Francisco and then one day in uh, November of 1987 November 11th to be exact 11/11, Jody Peckman called me up and said Jay it's Jody Peckman at Rolling Stone Magazine. I have your big break. I need you to go into San Francisco and photograph the free U2 concert that's going to happen in downtown San Francisco and Justin Herman Plaza. And I went down there and there was a million photographers and they all submitted their stuff to Rolling Stone. I was on assignment for Rolling Stone. They used my photograph and that was the beginning of a relationship with Jody where I went on to do like 300 assignments for her over the next 30 years. Jody was with Rolling Stone for I think 30 years, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, I think it was 30 years exactly, 30, 31 years. And, uh, and so that was how that kind of morphed. And so once I started doing all this work for Jody, I sort of started being called by people locally in the music business business. Oh, Jay Blakesburg, he's the Rolling Stone photographer. And, and, and back then, Uh, you know, Rolling Stone still carried a lot of um, influence in rock journalism, probably the most influence. Bands still wanted to be in Rolling Stone. Bands still wanted to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, And so I was mostly just shooting news items and live concerts and the occasional uh, portrait, and that was me sort of teaching myself, right? So I started looking at magazines, and you'd open up a magazine or you'd look at a magazine cover, and on the cover was a portrait of the band. And then you'd open up to the story and it'd be like a a full page or a one and a half page or a two page spread. And it was a portrait of the band. And then you'd flip the page reading the article. And then there was a live photograph of the band that was like, you know, four by six or five by seven. And so I realized pretty early on that if I was going to be successful as a photographer, I needed to learn how to do portrait work. And so I started to teach myself how to do studio lighting and to do portrait work because I knew that that's what I needed to do if I was going to have photos that were going to be on an album cover, a CD cover, a magazine cover, a feature. And so as my career sort of grew organically in the late 80s, uh, working with Rolling Stone and later Guitar Player Magazine and then um, Relics Magazine again and The Golden Road, I started getting professional access to the band. I started getting photo passes from uh, the, the the band, you know, from the publicist. And um, in uh, the late 80s, 89, late, late 80s, 89, I started working on a project with Rob Wasserman. And Rob was working on an, a record called Trios. And I somehow met his manager, a woman named Claire Wasserman, who was his wife at the time. And they hired me to start documenting all the different sessions that, Rob was doing with these different musicians. And he did one with Bob Weir, and he did one with Jerry Garcia and Edie Brickell, and I shot those. And uh, right around that same time, in late 89, or, or actually probably early 90, Weir decided that he wanted to start a new project outside the Grateful Dead called Weir Wasserman. And it was an acoustic duo. And because I had this relationship with Rob Wasserman, they needed a publicity photo to announce this new project. So Claire referred me to Bob's office and Bob's office called me and they hired me and in June of 1990, that was the first time that the Grateful Dead, our member of the Grateful Dead paid me money to photograph them. And that was with Bob Weir. And then from there, I went on to do some stuff with Mickey Hart. And, you know, over the last five years, I was still, um, I was a working professional. So I was getting photo passes and able to shoot in the pit but it's not like I was working with the bands that much one-on-one except for Bobby and occasionally Mickey, but Bobby a lot, you know, so after the Weir Wasserman photo shoot, I did a photo shoot with Bobby because he was doing a children's book with his sister and he needed an author portrait. So they, he hired me for that. And then he did a second children's book with his sister and he needed an author portrait for that. They hired me for that. And then he decided somewhere in between all that, they decided that they wanted to, and a drummer to Weir Wasserman and make it a trio and and it was with Jay Lane and so they hired me to do a portrait of Bob and Rob and Jay Lane and so I kept kind of getting all this recurring business with Bob Weir and then on top of that I was getting assigned to different magazine stories. I got an assignment from Musician Magazine to do a portrait of Bob. I went up to his house and did that. I got an assignment from a bicycling magazine to do a story on Bob because he was a big avid street and mountain biker and I you know, because I had a relationship with him and he knew me, it was easy for me. Like the bicycling magazine thing was they were having a hard time getting a response from his publicist. I ran into him at the old Sweetwater at a, uh, I think it was John Lee Hooker's birthday party. And I said, Hey, you know, I hear that runner, uh, not runners, runner, uh, bicycling magazine was, wants to do this story on you and your bikes. They asked me to photograph it. Are you up for it? He goes, yeah. When do you want to do it? I go, have a next week. He's like, sure. Come up to my house on Tuesday you know and I knew where Bob lived I'd been to his house several times at that point for all the different stuff I was doing and uh just went up to his house and met him we went up to Mount Tam the mountain nearby um in, in Mill Valley and and did a bunch of photos of him riding his bikes and and uh you know that was what was for the story so there are all these kind of recurring things so it was Bob, Bob 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 and then um you know I got an assignment from the Golden Road Magazine which was a grateful that fans needed to do a portrait of Garcia hunter together for an interview they were doing one of i think only two interviews they ever did together anywhere and uh even though the photo shoot was like three minutes long i ended up with these you know somewhat iconic photos of garcia and hunter together and 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 perhaps my most iconic photo of just jerry close-up of his face that was a portrait and then uh garcia did an art show in 92 over in berkeley at an art gallery with his paintings and i got hired by rolling stone and uh, in 93, I did a portrait of him for Acoustic Guitar magazine. And so it was just, you know, it was all very professional. I mean, I was a working photojournalist that, you know, by the early 90s was doing serious portrait work and studio lighting and environmental portraits. And, and uh, you know, my career was sort of on its way. And, and uh, I still stuck around the Grateful Dead a lot. I love the Grateful Dead. But... It was also sort of the birth of alternative rock in the late 80s with those bands that I mentioned earlier and I was documenting that and I was shooting anything that anybody wanted to shoot. And at the time in the 90s, the early 90s, you know, in in 87, when Touch of Grey came out, there was a big media blitz on the Grateful Dead and, you know, things happen and I got some work and some things published and whatever. But by the 90s, again, they weren't, weren't really a news story, except for that there was disasters happening around dead shows. And so, if I wanted to make a living, I needed to be shooting what was hot and happening, which were the Red Hot Chili Peppers and you know Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and this new band called Nirvana. And you know, and I I, I approached Guitar Player magazine and I started shooting covers for them. And then I went to Bam magazine in '89, which is a local um, newsprint-based. Uh, bay area music magazine bam and i asked i walked in there and said i want to shoot covers for you and they were like "Ha ha ha. yeah you want to shoot covers like everybody within a few months they called me back and said okay we have your first cover and you should go shoot camper van beethoven down in santa cruz and i went on to shoot i believe the correct number is 59 covers of bam magazine starting in the late 80s until you know somewhere in the 90s Bands like Smash Mouth and green day and and uh, jane 's Addiction and Neil young and tom uh, Tom Petty, I think out I a cover It was a live shot, and you know just uh, a lot of different bands that I was working with, and so I was still around the Grateful Dead orbit, but shooting all this other stuff because that 's what was paying my bills and that 's what was supporting me and my rent and my house and my life and you know at that point, I was married in the you know early nineties and and uh you know, I was on my way.
0: Yeah. For
1: a long answer to a short question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously,
0: all the bands you've listed, it's a crazy list and it's really crazy to think about. And obviously, um, I think the Dead would definitely apply to this next question, but besides them, are there any other like bands or artists that you've photographed that you were a big fan of before where it's kind of like an oh shit moment? Like I, I get to, you know, meet and like associate with this person?
1: So yes, yes, and yes. I mean, uh, you know, I've been very, very lucky that I've been able to photograph pretty much music that I've always loved. Um, Yeah, I shot a couple of hair metal bands, you know, here and there, Uh, you know, a few assignments. Shakira, I shot maybe once, you know, I don't really listen to much Shakira, but it was a Rolling Stone assignment, Uh, things like that. uh, no, actually it was Christina Aguilera for Rolling Stone. Shakira was for somebody else. So, you know, in general, I've always shot, you know, and yeah, I mean, I'm in awe of people like Neil Young, but I've been working with Neil Young for 30 years on a and you know, I've done multiple portrait sessions with him and, and, uh, you know, have stuff going on with him all the time. And, you know, and, and, uh, I'm a huge Neil Young fan. And so like, you know, the Grateful Dead, I started photographing in 1978 and still can con- consider what's going on with Dead and Co. and Phil and Friends, and all this other stuff that happened post Jerry to be part of my Grateful Dead archive. My Grateful Dead archive didn't stop when Jerry died. My Grateful Dead archive stops when Bob, Phil, Mickey, and Billy all retire and no longer play music. Right. And so uh, they're the band that I photographed the most. Uh, but, you know, like Jackie Green, I've been photographing for 16 years now. Uh, the Mother Hips, I don't know if you know that band. They're a Bay Area uh, San Francisco band. I first photographed them in 90 two or three, four, somewhere right around there. So, you know, we're getting close to 30 years with them. Uh, I started photographing the Flaming Lips in 1989. I did a book on the Flaming Lips with Wayne and the band, and, and uh, which is a really hard book to find and a very expensive book if you can find it on eBay. I've seen them at $800. Um, it's signed and numbered by the band and me. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're out there. If you, I, can, I can direct people if they want to find one. Give me a holler. Um, rockoutbooks.com. Shoot me an email. Uh, But anyway, so, so, you know, I did a book on the Flaming Lips. I've worked with Primus since the late 80s. I did a book on Primus. Um, uh, I've done 15 coffee table books on my music photography. So, uh, uh, you know, yeah, Carlos Santana, I started working with in the late 80s and still work with him. Uh, So, you know, all of these artists are, I'm in awe of because they all are incredible. I did a book about uh what is it uh 13 14 15 years ago 2008 is what is that 13 years ago 15, was that?
0: yeah
1: okay uh called traveling on a high frequency and it was sort of like a career retrospective j blakesburg 2008 uh i mean 19, 1978 2008 and um that book is completely sold out Does, you can't you can find them used i'm guessing somewhere i don't have any more and there's no more out there but um uh, that was, that was my, not my, my first book was on the Grateful Dead. My second one was on Primus. My third one was on the Flaming Lips. My fourth one was on traveling on high frequency. All I know is going to say is that we named that book traveling on a high frequency because these artists that I photograph travel on a high frequency. Right. And so that's what I'm trying. So all of these people, I want to be around them because they are just so charismatic and so, intense and so creative and so brilliant that you know i'm inspired by them and so you can't go and do a photograph of neil young one-on-one face to face and be a fanboy or jerry or anybody you've got to be professional you know you've got to be you know you got to keep it real and so i've been able to do that but i've been in the presence of many of my musical heroes um, iconic people that travel on a high frequency and um I feel very fucking blessed, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of books, I know uh, just a couple of years ago, you put out a coffee table book of pictures of Jerry, uh, secret space of dreams. I want to ask yeah. you, like, what's the process of putting a book like that together? Like, obviously I think there was 145 pictures in the book total, but how many pictures do you look at
1: before you like start whittling them down? Like how long is that process? Well, So a book, uh, uh, it usually takes about a year to make a book. And, uh, and that book only came out, uh, in October of 2019. Yeah. So not that long, just you know, October. Yeah. So we're only like a year, a year and a few months into that book. So that's my most recent book. Um, I've got a couple other books that I'm working on right now that, you know, again, it's a year long process. So they're going to come out a year from now and, and, uh, in the spring and the fall of 2022 are the two next books that'll probably come out. And, um, So, uh, it's, you know, with Jerry Garcia, I'm basically just looking at all the pictures I've taken of Jerry and, you know, I've got a lot of stuff scanned, but then I go back to original proof sheets and I'm trying to find things that maybe I didn't like 20 years ago, but my taste has changed. And I found many pictures like that. Um, you know, like, let's go to a book like, uh, like jam or hippie chick, uh, you know, those books that have more contemporary photography in it, I'm looking through. 150, 200,000 photographs to narrow it down to two, three, 400 photographs, you know, something like that. Uh, Because, you know, and I'm not looking at every single photo, like 100,000 click, click, you know, like I'm scanning folders, you know, like with the hippie chick book, I'm scanning folders looking for fans because that's what the book is about. Right. And, uh, and I might see them and I pull stuff out and create folders and, and, and collections and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but, you know, yeah, you've got to look through, you know, depending on what the book is on, you have to look through a lot of photos to get there. It's not it's not just like, you know, here they are in one spot. you got to look through proof sheets and slides and negatives and scans and digital files.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, a really long
1: process. It's a long process. Yeah. Uh,
0: And then I know the foreword for that book was written by, of course, John Mayer. Uh, How did that end up happening, too?
1: Uh, So John and I have known each other for a number of years pre-Dead Co. We weren't friends or anything like that. We just sort of crossed paths in these weird kind of ways. And um, uh, it it, it all started with a photograph that I took of him very early in his career, uh, where I kind of barged into his dressing room to say hi to him. Because a, a woman that he was friends with, I was good friends with. She was a record company person who did a lot of work with me and uh did work with John. And uh so I sort of barged into his dressing room. He was in there alone and he was sitting on the ground and he was wearing these really ugly jeans. And I took a picture of him, and then I didn't see John Mayer again for like seven years. And when I introduced myself to him, the first thing he said to me was, I hadn't seen him in seven years. He said, Oh you're the guy who took that picture of me with the really ugly jeans, okay, (laughs) he knew, he remembered, and that became a theme for us for the next, you know, for over a period of about 15 years altogether uh, before he joined Denica, like, there was two other times where I hadn't seen him for, you know, another two or three or four or five years, oh, yeah, I, I know you, you're the guy who took that picture of me with the ugly jeans, uh, one time at a Denico show, we made a print of the ugly jeans photo and hung it in his dressing room. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so uh, so John and I had become friends, and 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 I think that John is, you know, beyond being a, a stellar guitar player, he's a, a stellar human being, and he is incredibly intelligent and articulate, and a brilliant writer, and he wrote, I, you know, and it took me a minute to convince him to, you know, and to make him understand what I was looking for, and and, uh, you know, because I'm not trying to compare him to Jerry Garcia, but he understands guitar playing. I mean, you know, from a technical standpoint, a creative standpoint, an educational standpoint, better than anybody out there or as good as anybody out there. I mean, he's a genius. He really is. And uh, and I knew that he could convey that in words, that connection, that feeling, uh, because he had been playing those songs now for four years or five years with original members of the Grateful Dead. And I knew that he could articulate what it was like and what those songs meant and what that guitar playing meant because he had done his homework. And he agreed to do it and he wrote an absolutely brilliant, bring you to tears forward for my Jerry Garcia book.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great. And obviously, like you mentioned, I think he's such a smart guy, he's very eloquent and he just, he has he has a way with words, it seems like. Uh, and then like kind of speaking of John and Dead & Co, are you a fan of Dead & Co.? Because I know when that first, I still remember like very vividly when they first announced it, it kind of got a mixed reaction, but I feel like every year they've gotten, they've only gotten better. And I've, I think he's just fun.
1: I'm a huge fan of Dead & Co. for many, many reasons and the music being just one part of it. But I think that Dead and & Co., and it goes back to Fairly Well first, you know, Fairly Well and then rolling into Dead & Co. reinvigorated this entire community of people, this family, this tribe. And, uh, and I think that all of these people were so reinspired with so much passion from seeing fairly well, and when Dead and, 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 and being so scared and nervous and upset that it was ending, that when Dead and Co. announced, the momentum was so huge. And so I love the music. I love photographing these guys. I mean, Bob Weir's in the '70s, and he's still a rock star. John Mayer is mind-boggling, O'Teal is incredible, the drummers are brilliant, Jeff Comente is unbelievable. I love this songbook, I love these musicians, I love the way they play these songs, I love the fans, I love the photo opportunities that this band brings to me, both on and off stage and backstage and in the audience and with the community of people that continue to be inspired by this music, continue to wanna to go see this music continue to want to travel long distances to see it and see multiple shows and keep the spirit of the good old Grateful Dead alive. And so I love it. I'm grateful. I am fortunate. I can't wait till we get back to reality so that we can go back and continue to do this again.
0: Yeah, that, that would definitely be nice. And then um, I kind of wanted to talk about directing because I know you've done some work directing stuff. And uh, I know you directed the the live at the Warfield concert film that Phil and friends does like what kind of goes into the process of directing a film for a live concert?
1: Well, that particular film was right on the cusp of like the digital revolution, right? You know, digital cameras that were could shoot video were just not there yet. Um, you know, we shot it with many, many cameras. Uh, I had never directed a live video before i had been doing a lot of work with Phil Lesh. He put his trust in me. He came to me and said, hey, we want to make a concert film. Can you make this happen? And I'm like, yeah. You know, I'd never done it before, but I fucking figured it out. And I love that film. I think it's amazing. And I I partnered with a friend of mine, a guy named Bob Sorrells, so we co-directed it. Um, He was the editor. Bob had been in the film business. You know, like I understand how to uh, size up a scene in a viewfinder and create really great-looking images, whether it's a still photograph capturing lightning in a bottle, or it's a moving picture. So I've been able to translate what I've been doing with a still camera for thirty years at that point, and translate it to what I was shooting in my di- my video camera and seeing on my viewfinder, and uh, and I was able to do that well. And Bob had the editing skills because he had edited feature films and documentaries for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and MTV videos with. Bands like Green Day and blah, 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 blah. And so I brought in, you know, a good team to surround me, right, of filmmakers and, 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 and camera operators. And, uh, and we made a great little film of that experience. Uh, it was right around that time, maybe a year later, I connected with a, a group out of St. Louis, Missouri, called iClips. And iClips were the very, very first people to start doing live web streams at music festivals. And they met me at a show they were streaming in San Francisco, like at the very, very beginning of iClips, and uh, they asked me to come on board as like a sort of a business consultant slash producer director, and I had never directed live video. And what that entails is, you know, you put a, a headset on and it's got a microphone, and you got five people out there with in different positions and everyone's got a number camera one camera two camera three camera four camera five and you'll direct them you say okay camera one give me a wide shot of the whole band uh camera two give me a a two-shot of the guitar player and the singer. Camera three, give me a close-up of just the guitar player. Camera four, give me the drummer. Camera five, give me the bass player. And that's where you start, and then you just start calling your shots, right? They start playing, you're like, okay, camera two, get ready, I want you, you're gonna go live, two, you're live. Three, come in a little bit tighter. Okay, three, get ready, go three. Camera one, get ready on that wide shot, coming back to you, hang on camera one. Camera four, give me, get ready for that drummer shot, go four okay stay there four 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 get ready one here we go one camera one you're live right and you're sitting there watching it all on a screen in front of you and you're calling it and you're trying to be creative and engaging with your camera operators who are basically filming what's going on on stage so that's how you you know that's how you direct that you know and i went on to direct several videos for the band mo and chris robinson brotherhood and the mother hips and jason crosby and and uh Jackie Green, I did, did a bunch of videos for. So that's basically, you know, I just kind of figured it out. And I like some aspects of it and other aspects of it I don't like. And, and I, uh, the last big thing that I did was I did, directed two uh, Chris Robinson Brotherhood videos when Neil Casal was still alive. And it was right at the end of the band, unfortunately. And uh, I shot one called Let It Fall and one called Chauffeur's Daughter and uh and i did like a three-day week they were playing two days at terrapin crossroads in marin and i did a three-day shoot with them uh one day we did all still photographs one day we shot all of um let it fall and one day we shot uh all of chauffeur's daughter and you can find those on youtube or vimeo or wherever you consume your video but just go look for the chris robinson brotherhood let it fall and the chris robinson brotherhood chauffeur's daughter and uh they were really fun to make and they were, those were ideas that I came up with and presented to the band and the record company and got signed off on and, and, and called in my a team and we made those videos.
0: That's awesome. And I know uh, right at the beginning, you mentioned the digital cameras and how they were kind of evolving. They weren't quite there yet. And that kind of brings me to my next question. Cause obviously since you started, you know, getting involved in photography and stuff, technology has changed a lot. Is it ever, a challenge to kind of adjust to the new stuff or like keep up with it
1: well yeah so on the filmmaking side of things i like to stay on the creative side and leave the technical stuff to the technical people and those are the people that are keeping up on the latest technologies and the latest cameras and the latest lenses and sensors and blah 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 blah. so i kind of leave that to um uh those folks when i work i have a a, a director of photography, a guy named Miles Beeson out of Chicago. He's my go-to guy, another another guy out of Chicago named Jameson Holland. Like those are my two go-to guys because they're on top of all of that stuff. And I bring the creative and they bring the technical. Um, on the photography side of things. Yeah. I mean, when we switch from, you know, digital to, to, uh, I mean, from film to digital, it was obviously a huge thing. You know, I mean, first of all, I'm 59 years old and I didn't grow up with a, computer in my hand and a cell phone as a pacifier you know but people who are in their 20s now did and even people in their 30s now did right and so i had to figure out how to make that transition and one of the things that i did is uh early on in my studio i hired always hired younger people to help me set up my digital studio my last employee my current employee that works for me now um in the digital world he's like kind of manages all the digital stuff he's 30 years old uh, but the guy i had before him a guy named ben who stayed with me for 11 years um he was 20 he was 19 years old when he started working for me and i saw in him the ability to understand a lot of this technology because he grew up building you know atari computers or whatever when he was six and on the farm in kansas you know and uh so i rely on people like that that can come in and um you know Show me how it all works. Yeah. Keep me in line.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh and then I kind of wanted to talk about um I know like you obviously have been all over the country taking pictures at basically any venue you can think of. So I'm like a big I don't know what it is. I'm a big like venue junkie. I love like just going around and looking at concert venues, stadiums and stuff. So I wanted to ask are there any like particular concert venues that you really love?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been to many, many beautiful, magical places. So I've been to Red Rocks many times, and I love Red Rocks. So not only is Red Rocks this iconic, beautiful, scenic venue. Have you been to Red Rocks? No. Okay. Um, Not only is it that the stage is only one foot off the ground. As a photographer, I love that. Shoreline Amphitheater, our big corporate amphitheater here in the Bay Area, same thing, super low stage, like a three-foot stage, right? So for me, that's a big part of it. Like, I love the Greek theater in Berkeley, but the stage is six feet high. So it's really hard to work there. But I love it. And, you know, once I started getting better access and being able to shoot on stage and things like that, I'm like, okay, I like this venue. It's a beautiful venue. Um, You know, I love the Fillmore, and I've been to the Fillmore in San Francisco, and <clears throat> the Fillmore in new york city um and i've probably been to the Fillmore in philadelphia and maybe i'm not sure if i've been to any other filmmores yet uh you know but there's you know our little venues in our hometown like the i beam in the 80s was iconic back then and i shot there and i love that and there's the independent now and there were slims for 30 years that just closed and if you know, there's the Fox Theater in Oakland that I just love that room. It's just amazing place to photograph great lighting, great sounds, <clears throat> great sound, great stage. Um, you know, uh, the Frost in Palo Alto where the Grateful Dead used to play. I haven't been there in years. We used to love that venue. So yeah, venues play a big part, low stages. I'm all about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then kind of speaking of dead shows, obviously you've been to a ton. Are there any specific ones when you kind of think back that really stand out as like some of your favorite shows?
1: I mean, many. You know, there are so many that just some. You know, and a lot of them I can I can remember what I thought about the show just from my photographs. You know, uh, so yeah, there's you know a lot of stuff in the 80s that I loved to shoot and um, you know particular shows and venues: the Greek, Monterey, Laguna Seca Raceway down in Monterey frost um you know lots of lots of really amazing places
0: yeah yeah and
1: shows and shows yeah, and of course shows.
0: yeah uh so then i kind of want to ask uh just kind of to wrap up obviously you've taken hundreds of thousands of pictures so it might be hard to narrow it down but are there any like particular ones that stand out to you as like some of the favorites you've taken when you kind of look back
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one also because, you know, you have, it's like, who's your favorite child, you know? (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, there's some photos of the Grateful Dead that I've taken and Jerry that truly mean a lot to me. But, you know, pictures of Ken Kesey or or Owsley or or Neil Young or Santana or, you know, even a band that I shot, you know, last year did a portrait of whoever that band, you know, might be. I, I feel very fortunate, you know, that I've taken so many photographs my tom Waits portraits, my Joni mitchell portraits you know johnny cash and june carter cash i just it's so hard you know like what's your favorite photograph you know what's your favorite star you know um uh you know too many to too many to really think about
0: yeah yeah totally yeah i get that uh that's basically all i have so uh i just want to say thanks i really appreciate you taking the time to do this this was a lot of fun
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Thank you. Um, Anytime you need anything else from me, just give me a shout. Yeah, sounds good.
0: Huge thank you to Jay for taking the time to come on and talk. Had a ton of fun talking to him. Really cool to get to hear about his work and everything that comes along with it. Thank you for listening. And tune in next week to hear another brand new episode with an all new guest. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.